Welcome everybody to the 11th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in our historical moment and talk about particular keywords in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas. So today's keyword is liquidity, and we have Gianna Eckhart to join us to explore the topic. But to remind the audience, we are actually going to try to take a perverted view uh, into the issues at hand and see what might lurk libidinally underneath the present situation. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Gianna? Indeed I would. Gianna Eckhart is Professor of Marketing at Royal Holloway. She is co-author of the book The Myth of the Ethical Consumer and regularly can be found contributing to leading journals in the field of business and marketing. Welcome to the podcast, Gianna. Thank you for having me. So, Gianna, today's keyword that we've identified is liquid. However, we're not really going to be talking about liquid uh, in a material sense. So what are we going to be talking about? Yes, so we're not talking about uh, liquid in terms of money or finances, which is probably the the way in which the term is most commonly used. And we're not going to be talking about it in terms of beer, although <laughs> I, uh, I like to talk about this over beer a lot. Um, but the way that we'll be using the term liquidity today is to is as a metaphor to understand the nature of late modernity. So my favorite uh, writer who talks about how and why society has gotten more liquid is the sociologist Zygmunt Bauman. So Zygmunt Bauman uses liquidity as a metaphor to describe the nature of late modernity. So what he's talking about in using this metaphor is that the structures of social life have become less solid and more liquid. So what that means is that things like the government, the church, even the nature of community in general they are not the solid pillars that are relatively uh, unchanging within society that people have turned to identify or to create their own identities, but also to structure their work lives, their social lives in ways that they did before. He talks about those types of institutions as crumbling or becoming more liquid, becoming more fluid, meaning that they don't have the same standing, um, but also that they don't organize life in the ways that they used to. An example of this would be people don't necessarily stay in the same job their whole lives, uh, which even, well, definitely our grandparents' generation, but even our parents' generation to a certain extent, people don't necessarily go to the same church within their the town or village that they grew up in in ways that they used to. So what the liquidification of these types of structures has led to is uncertainty, instability, insecurity uh, within society. So people don't necessarily, you know, they're always thinking about what is my next job going to be? How am I going to find my partner in life? Do I even want a partner in life? What do I believe? Um, There's so much to choose from. And actually that notion of choice is quite an important one in terms of understanding liquidity. So when society becomes more liquid, What typically happens is that people approach navigating their lives through this lens of a consumer mindset. So now 
things aren't dictated to me. I have the choice. I can choose which religion I want to be. I can combine them all together. Um, I can choose any identity that I would like. And in doing so, this notion of choice um, becomes really prominent. So in terms of a logic. So in other words, life tends to be approached from this consumer lens. Um, and this market logic tends to be applied to every aspect of life. And just to be clear, this isn't something that uh, Bauman sees as a positive uh, aspect of liquidity. This is something that uh, is is quite negative in the sense of when you think about healthcare or education through this market logic, and that you know the the people getting these services are consumers, and they can choose and they can co-create. This is something that has negative consequences in society uh, rather than positive. A couple other things to highlight in terms of understanding what this term liquidity means is that the logic in, in a liquid society is that of individualization. So people are individuals rather than parts of communities. And so again, to get back to the notion of choice that I said before, uh, it's all about the individual managing and organizing their lives on their own through their own choices, um, use value becomes very important as compared to things like linking value or connecting value. And as such, you, we tend to see a fragmentation of life and identity. Um, a couple other things that are just two other important things I'd like to highlight, again, uh, to, to answer this question of what is the this liquidity that we're talking about. Um, the first is that these types of changes that I've talked about in terms of society are very um, accelerated in late modernity. And this is something that Bauman has alluded to in his writings, but hasn't um, elucidated as much as some other authors uh, since him. So... Bauman started writing about liquidity in 2000, so it's been about 20 years since this metaphor has been introduced, and a lot of people have engaged with it and used it since then. And in my view, one of the most important um, additions to our understanding of liquidity is the notion that these changes are accelerated, and this pace of acceleration is one of the things that results in the alienation that, you tend, that we tend to see in this liquid form of late modernity. So what I mean by acceleration is that the pace of change from solid to liquid is going faster than what the typical uh, human, I don't want to say human brain, but almost human existence can deal with. So what I mean by that is that technological change is happening um, very rapidly. And Bauman himself refers to uh, digitalization as one of the main uh, proponents of this, but it's also the pace of life. So the amount of things that people are expected to do within a given day. Um, and also the nature of society itself. So social change. So in other words, what marriage means, who can be married, uh, what gender means, how many genders there are. All these types of things are institutions which have existed in society for a really long time but they're being changed into not being as structured and becoming more liquid in a very, very short period of time in an accelerated way. So this is a really important part of understanding why um, that liquidity is something that is not um, necessarily positive at our moment in late modernity. And that brings me to the final point I'd like to highlight um, just in terms of defining what liquidity is, which is that one of the most important consequences of the liquidification of society is precarity. So what this means is that 
so many people find their lives to be more precarious. And this is not necessarily just attached to social class. There have always been people within society who have lived at a very precarious level. But this precarity tends to be seen across society to a much larger degree than, you know, before 20 years ago when we started to see this uh, really increased pace of liquidification. So what do I mean by precarity? I think a great example of this in terms of the realm of work is the rise of gig workers. So the sharing economy has become really prominent in the past uh, decade and people working have not necessarily having one job, not even being classified as a worker, but being classified as someone who is an independent contractor providing a service via a platform. And the typical term used to refer to this is a gig worker. Because these people aren't classified as workers, they don't have any of the, the, the benefits or the stability that, that a worker would have. So they're not guaranteed you know, a certain number of days off. If they don't get particular gigs on that day, they're not paid. All of those types of things are, um, are, are a really important aspect of, uh, of how and why precarity is becoming more filtered throughout society. A couple other examples of this is that, you know, when people experience this level of precarity in their life, um, in order to try and manage it, things like ratings and reputation systems become really important. So in other words, I can't even sell things I would like to sell on Amazon or eBay to make some money unless I have a good rating as a seller. I can't get more gig opportunities unless the people that I've provided services to have rated me you know, really well. I can't get a partner unless I, <laughs> unless I get great ratings on Tinder and other places like this. So these ratings and reputation systems, which are based on surveillance, these become one of the main mechanisms to try, well, I was going to say push back, but that's not even the right word, to try and manage this precarity. And then the final point that I would make about precarity is um, the idea that it, also in order to manage it, that everyone should kind of become micro-entrepreneurs a market mentality of approaching managing your life through this uh, consumer lens, kind of, you know, having this market logic that evidences itself in every aspect of life. People becoming micro-entrepreneurs, so trying to monetize all aspects of their life is something that's become really prominent in the past decade as well. So this is the idea that, oh, you have an extra bedroom? Well, rent it out on Airbnb. Oh, you own a drill, but you only use it once a year when you're doing home repairs? Well, put it on a home library so people can pay you to access it, and on and on. So this idea of yeah, monetizing every aspect of one's life is something that has come to prominence because of this precarity, which is a, is a consequence of liquid modernity. Um, and then if one is not able to manage this precarity through these types of processes, then Bauman calls this underclass failed consumers. And this underclass, again, is not just people who, from a traditional class perspective, tend to be at the bottom of the class hierarchy. There are many people who can be failed consumers, and Bauman highlights the connection to mobility and flexibility as one of the main criteria that leads people to be successful or failed consumers. So in other words, if you can't be mobile so that you can move somewhere where the next job is um, because of particular family ties or whatever, you are going to be disadvantaged and have a and have a higher chance of becoming a failed consumer. If you don't buy into ratings and reputation systems and you haven't spent you know, capital trying to build that up, that's going to lead to you possibly being a failed consumer.
Um, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, this invocation of late modernity, because, of course, Marx and Engels um, also had this concept of uh, illiquidization that was uh, inherent to bourgeois culture, that they saw constant revolutionizing, not just of the instruments of production, but of social relations too. And they used that famous line, all that is solid melts into air. My question is, what, what is the substantive difference that makes this a theory of late modernity and not of capitalism generally? First, I will say that, you know, Bauman, who is the main um, thinker that I'm pulling from here in my own thoughts, definitely acknowledges this tradition from Marx, but also he pulls in particular from Beck's idea of risk society, who is also talked about these ideas leading to increased risk. Um, and he sees his way of thinking as being an evolution of these earlier discussions of liquidity rather than something that is different or opposed to it. But to answer your to, to your question of um, why is this kind of more um, applicable to this idea of late modernity, um, Bauman himself was very interested in ideas of post-modernity up through the end of the 90s. So this is before he was thinking of in terms of metaphors of liquidity. Um, and in that sense, he was kind of um, pushing back against these notions of kind of the, the traditional way which Marx, for example, would see society developing as uh, in terms of being based in a production logic, for example. But in the in the year 2000 is when Bauman decided that the world was not postmodern and that actually we are in an age of late modernity. And although he didn't use the term kind of late capitalism, I, I would imagine that he would agree that late modernity is parallel, not exactly the same, but parallel to the, the idea of late capitalism. Bauman was, of course, a survivor of the Holocaust, and indeed he read a lot of the inflections of the Third Reich and Holocaust into consumer culture. But I'm wondering how major an event was the Holocaust in terms of Bauman's understanding of modernity? Did he see some sort of major ethical rupture that has defined everything that happened subsequently? I think, I mean, there is no doubt that the Holocaust was a, a major influence on him as a person and on his thinking. Um, I don't think he saw the Holocaust as the beginning of liquidity, for example. So I wouldn't trace that, that event in, in terms of a lineage to his thinking on liquidity. Um, in terms of his focus on some of the aspects of liquidity, of liquid modernity, such as, for example, this notion of individualization and of use value, of rationalization. I think that those elements of his thinking did, well, you could argue that they, they, that they could have stemmed from his, his experiences in um, uh, going through the, experiencing the Holocaust himself. Because in terms of his own thinking of how could something like this have happened, um, this switch from having a communal view about what it is to be a society to having a more individualized view about what is the value of these particular people, how can it help me if they don't have a value, how can we get rid of them? I think that type of instrumental use value thinking that he later developed is probably what can be traced back to his experiences of the Holocaust in the clearest way. The liquidity in the sense that we're talking about it today 
seems to be a little bit like an effect rather than a kind of, a, if you will, a cause. Because uh, from a Deleuze Guattarian perspective, there are certain things that are not liquid, which uh, in effect create this idea that everything is accelerating and becoming more liquid. And that would be that there is an axiom upon which the whole notion of liquidity builds on, and that is capital itself or capitalism, or the idea that you have to always be accumulating, creating more, producing more. So there is an axiom that it all returns to, and this axiom is rather solid, even though it morphs all the time, of course, as capitalism does to recreate itself. But there is an axiom that is then creating this precarization and individualization of society. So uh, did Bowman or do you see everything as liquid or are there things that are less liquid and basically creating the conditions of liquidity? This is the main criticism that has been um, put towards Bauman in the past uh, 20 years. And so uh, there are many, many critiques of Bauman start out saying, all that is solid has not turned into air, <laughs> um, to use the quote that, uh, that, that, that Alan mentioned earlier. Um, the way that I've used these ideas, I do think that there are many things that are still solid um, and capital is certainly one of them. But I think that there are also societal institutions that are still solid, that are very difficult to to break. And certainly uh, government, I think, would be one. Well, that's a, a difficult conversation, I guess, because government certainly has had more of this market logic and this consumption logic infused into it in the way Bauman wrote about, but it has not disappeared in terms of being an important structure on people's daily lives. So the way that I think about liquidity and that I've used it in my own work is as a continuum. And in talking about the solid, I think it's not only the point that you brought up, which is that things like capital even though it morphs and takes different forms, doesn't seem to ever go away as a structuring device and so seems to be quite solid in that sense. But it's also that other aspects of consumption, so this is perhaps a more mundane point, but other more solid aspects of consumption are starting to become more of a luxury, if you will. So people who can engage in living their lives in ways that are more solid that they, if they can seek that out as a way to kind of push back against the precarity that comes from liquidity, this is becoming more and more um, the basis of status hierarchies than than ever before. So, uh, in that sense, I I do agree that there are aspects of solidity that not only have not disappeared, but that are still structuring people's lives in an, in important ways. And uh, also, if we take this discussion a little bit to consumer research, uh, in the 90s, when postmodernity was written about rather generously in our field, it was not without lots of, uh, if you will, emancipatory fanfare. So uh, with postmodernity, structures were seen as totalizing to a large extent. And there was an idea that there is a lot of, uh, there is liberatory potential all over the place, destroying these structures, becoming more free in some sense. You know, I guess you can link this to the individualization as well rather readily. The idea that now you can choose your, you know, whatever your lifestyle and so on in society. So there was optimism. I guess it coincides rather nicely with Fukuyama's end of history in that sense too. So what happened along the way that, created this situation where we can now look at the situation 
uh, in a rather cynical fashion that it was optimistic, but we are now enjoying all the trappings of postmodernity, I guess, but we don't seem to be any happier, rather quite the opposite. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to me, I see the kind of break in this as the internet bubble that burst, in, if you remember, at the end of 99 and the beginning of 2000. So in some ways, that was very similar to the recession that we saw in 2008. It was the precursor to that, if you will. And so it was the first recession that had happened in, in, in quite a long time of kind of an upward trajectory of economic growth uh, in many countries. And I think this is when the, yes, this liberatory potential, people started to question it because this is when digitalization and the internet was first coming into its own and people were starting to recognize that, A, the opportunities it provided weren't, you know, endless and people didn't have this kind of endless liberatory potential to choose what their identities were going to be and who they were going to be and how they were going to make their money and et cetera. That things like algorithms, Google was starting to be, you know, coming into prominence uh, right at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, a lot of people went into conditions of economic precarity right then. So the this idea that algorithms were going to be controlling our lives to a larger extent was just beginning to emerge at that moment. Even kind of gig working, although it wasn't called that and the sharing economy didn't really exist then, people were um, starting to do co-working and starting to move from job to job and be serial entrepreneurs in ways that they hadn't before. And so I think the fact that structures weren't as strong anymore, yeah, it wasn't, this was the moment when that wasn't seen as necessarily liberatory anymore, but as something that was going to ultimately probably have a negative effect on many people's lives. And I would argue that if you take that argument to its most logical extent, even the people now who have managed to, or who are managing precarity better than other people in society, they still don't have that many solid, tangible resources. So when they hit the age of retirement, for example, what exactly are they going to do? I mean, there's a lot of consequences of this that haven't necessarily hit yet, but a lot of people started thinking about them in ways that they hadn't before, right at that moment around the early 2000s. The everyday lived experience in liquidity seems to be something that's very feverish. Uh, this acceleration that you mentioned earlier, we, we experience it in the reduced life cycles of fashions, for example, uh, in this heightened uh, fragmentation, atomization. So it's, it seems to be something that we experience at the level of mental health as well, that it's, it's a very destabilizing existence. Do you think so? Yes, there's a term for this that I really love, which is uh, called time sickness. And the idea is that because the human body cannot handle this constant rate of change, that it results in actually a sickness both mental and physical. And so this includes things like, as you mentioned, fast fashion, that kind of the value in fashion now comes from the newness of it, that people have the latest thing rather than the innate kind of inherent stylishness of a particular piece that was changed once a season. Now it's once a week. And trying to keep up with that as well as then selling all of your old clothes from last week because you can't afford the new ones and having to keep up with that process, not to mention 
mention, you know, all of the emails and have you called your mom and all of the other things that um, that pile up uh, absolutely has both mental and physical effects. And I think that, yeah, this term time sickness captures that quite well. Working in the contemporary university, we seem to be in a constant state of change and flux. Would you want to say in liquidity that change becomes an end in its own right, that there doesn't necessarily have to be a purpose uh, to change, except that the purpose is we must be in a constant state of change? Yeah, one of the things that I've written about is that the new source of value is newness. Or should I say the source of value for for most um, things in our life? And by things, I mean, how good is this program that you're teaching in? You know, um, what is the benefit of this research? You know, anything that you can think about in our lives at the university, but our lives um, more generally, the value lies in the newness itself. And what that results in is exactly what you've just described, which are these endless cycles of change. The second that someone comes into a new position, whether it's vice chancellor or head of a program or whatever it might be within the university, they can only prove their value by changing everything that's been done in a particular way to show that they've managed to put their own imprint on it to make it work somehow infinitesimally better. And of course, the result of that is making everyone else's life uh, even more than infinitesimally worse. Now, there's a paradox opened up in that traditionally we would think of conservatives as people who want to uphold the old institutions uh, to protect them and to reify the sort of class privileges that's around them. But increasingly, conservatives today are the ones who are pushing this constant cycle of change. So what has happened within conservative thought? I think in many, well, the way that I would think about this is that that aspects of solidity are becoming a new kind of luxury and form of distinction. And I think that people who are not conservatives recognize this more and recognize the value that it can bring to a broader swath of society. I think that conservatives tend to embrace this way of managing liquidity by putting value on constant change Uh, which stems, or I shouldn't say stems from, but has a very clear connection to a neoliberal way of looking at the world, which in my view does stem from liquidity in terms of applying these marketplace values and ways of looking at things to a wide variety of things in society, whether it's healthcare, education, etc. So when you see in the marketplace that value has shifted to newness, then I think conservatives are more likely to apply that logic in other aspects of life uh, in the same way that they imply other realms of neoliberal logic um, to the way that they tend to address and manage uh, a variety of different issues. Now that we have seen, especially in the States, that many government officials are eager, eagerly professing their will to sacrifice parts of the population to save the economy, especially in Texas, um, doesn't this whole amnesia and the neophilia sort of echo the very functioning of the stock market itself? And what I mean by that is that we understand how finances are abstracted to the point where it's really hard to connect future uh, value to any tangible production or any tangible content in the present day. When all the finance markets work in a fashion where it's the future value speculation that's worth anything. 
So what we get instead of you know, free markets, we get monopolization and massive centralization of large corporations, global corporations, because only through large monopolization can a company by any means uh, imagine that they can manipulate their future value. So in this sense, there is this liquidity that's going on again, where everything is moving and changing, but at the same time, there is this solidity behind the scenes of the system, even though ideology might be rather different. So isn't this kind of the the whole situation where the newness itself is sort of an analogy to the trajectory of the future value that is in all of our ideology about capital itself. That's a great observation. Um, I was really struck when I was watching an interview with some of those protesters in Texas where the interviewer said to one woman, well, so do you not believe that the pandemic is real? And she said, no, I believe it's real. I realize that it's killing people and, um, you know, at the rates which are being reported. And I yes, I do realize that and believe it. Um, but at the same time, I just want to get back to work. I want to be able to make money. I don't want to take a government handout. I want to be able to go get my haircut. And if that results in either me or other people dying, well, that's okay. What our way of life is, is about working and about us providing for ourselves. And that's what I want to get back to doing. And I was so struck by that. And I think that that's a great uh, example of what you have just described. So it's not just governments as exemplified by the Trump government, for example, who is applying that type of logic or ideology to people's lives in addition to the stock market, for example, but it's people themselves applying that ideology to their own lives. It feels very disorientating right now in terms of liquidity as a concept. On the one hand, everything has slowed down. And on the other hand, things are moving more fast than ever. On the one hand, we're utterly atomized in as much as people a lot of us are locked into our homes or quarantined, self-isolating. And yet, on the other hand, we're doing so in this huge, tremendous spirit of social solidarity. So it seems very contradictory at times. Can liquidity help us to understand uh, the, the contemporary moment? I have been thinking a lot about this, both because I am uh, at home <laughs> in preparation for this podcast. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I absolutely agree that it is a contradictory time in, in many ways. We, In some ways, we're all being forced into a more solid way of life by staying at home, um, not engaging in uh, as much or the types of consumption that we, that we normally would, trying to navigate work life through all of a sudden imposed structures that we didn't used to have um, by virtue of having to stay at home, etc. So I've been reflecting, is this going to be a moment? Um, oh, and also another important part of that is that governments all over the world have had to come forth and say, okay, in order to save the economy, social life, etc., we need to bail out. I hate that term, by the way, but that's the term often used, uh, different industries, etc., in order to, to keep this all afloat. So even from from this more macro kind of uh, stock market or finance or capital perspective, we've seen more of a, you know, the, the comeback of large social structures, for example, um, in terms of structuring our lives in the economy. But ultimately, though, I don't think this is a moment where we're going to see more of a shift back to the solid. And I'll give you some examples of why I think that. So, 
the mayor of London today is launching a platform by which consumers can pre-buy goods. So whether it's a haircut or a meal in the future or whatever that may be from uh, the, the local business people in your own community so that they can have income coming in now so that once the lockdown is finally lifted, they will be in existence and people will be able to still have the type of thriving community that they want to live in, which has those types of shops and businesses and things in them. So on the one hand, you can say, well, okay, this is a really innovative and that's a great, you know, that's great that people's communities won't be, will hopefully be richer at the end of this than, than if there weren't a platform like this. But ultimately, this is a very consumer logic way of addressing this issue, right? That consumers are being um, asked to consume in advance in order to kind of save the economy. It's this same consumer responsabilization logic, which you see within liquidity, you know, so much. And in many ways, I feel like that's being amplified right now. And and, and the second example I would bring up to support that point of view is what's happening in China now since their lockdown has been lifted. So what I mean, you're probably familiar with the idea that China has a social credit system in the first place. So meaning that everyone has this score which reflects their consumption habits, how much alcohol they buy. Every time they go to the store, for example, the more you buy, the lower your score is going to be, but also the way you participate in your community. If you litter, um, that can lower your score, for example. Um, and this is being used in China to, um, from a health perspective in this post-coronavirus world. So what I mean by this is that now when you go to go into a store in the cities like Beijing and Shanghai that are reopened, you need to show a green, uh, it's like a green color that comes up on your phone. Uh, and you need to be able to show that you have green in order to be admitted into any of these stores. And the way that you get green is by um, showing that you have not been near other people who have had a positive test for coronavirus in the past two weeks, for example. And this is able to be done through the social surveillance system that has been set up over the past few years in China. Um, and so this idea of kind of using surveillance and using these ratings and reputation systems in order to manage life, both during but in particular post-coronavirus, is again tied into the notion of liquidity that we have been talking about today and is very much a... Um, yeah, a logical result of that. So I don't really see this coronavirus moment as a moment where we're going to be able to kind of break free from liquidity. And, and actually, in fact, the opposite could could be true, that the consequences of liquidity could be could be seen to an even larger degree in the market after this moment is over. Certainly, we can expect a lot more unemployment, which could be hugely transformative to the type of society that we live in. Absolutely. Um, so I think people like gig workers, for example, they've had a little bit of success as being classified as employees in the first place so that they can have access. So the UK government, for example, has said that 80% of salaries will be paid until the lockdown is over. Um, so being classified as an employee allows people to get access to that. And let's see if, uh, if more of that happens or not. I'd like to ask one speculative question. A key part of Bauman and uh, I guess others too talking about liquidity is the idea that is intensifying and accelerating. 
So Ray Brazier, while talking about rather different things, uh, accelerationist uh, literature to be specific, he was sort of giving out a critique of the accelerationist idea where everything is intensifying, every, everything is accelerating, everything should be deterritorialized to the maximum. And Brazier was like, hold on, wait a minute, what is the cosmic speed limit here? If everything is just intensificatory, what is the outcome of it if you sort of take it to its ultimate conclusion? So just as a speculative theoretical notion, what do you think would this mean to liquidity in a Bauman and you know, other sense? What is the ultimate conceptual outcome of accelerating liquidity? Very interesting question. I had been thinking a little bit about this in the context of climate change before this coronavirus moment, um, meaning that if the Earth really is on the verge of, you know, becoming one big fireball, which is certainly uh, what I was thinking about during that moment of the Australian bushfires earlier in 2020, um, and but of course, you know, also the ice caps melting and all of the things that are happening. I was thinking, you know, is this going to be the logical endpoint if things are accelerating, intensifying, and what it's going to lead to is most of the Earth being uninhabitable? then that is perhaps the logical endpoint. So of course, the question then becomes, can we slow down this intensification and rate of acceleration? Or perhaps in the way that you just put it, is there an endpoint to this? It's not kind of infinity. Um, and is that endpoint going to kick in before the entire earth is uh, is decimated. And in this coronavirus moment, you know, in addition to bushfires and ice caps melting, you know, you can add the increased um, percentage chance of pandemics um, affecting the whole world. And indeed, this has had a, a larger effect on the world than even climate change in the sense that it's been able to bring about a full stop um, to, to people traveling, uh, leaving their homes, et cetera, in a way that climate change never was able to to do. So I guess I would say that I would hope that there would be either a natural or a man-made imposed <laughs> stop to this intensification and rate of acceleration in the way that we're seeing now, although probably not as extreme as now, because I think things aren't going to be as different after the post-coronavirus moment as a lot of people are are surmising that it will be. Um, but if there can be a stop to that rate of acceleration before we all destroy ourselves, um, I would I would be hopeful that that would happen. And that maybe now that people have seen that we can all be at home and not travel and not do all of these things and exist and the world doesn't fall apart. Well, maybe it has fallen apart a little, but <laughs> is still uh, is still moving forward to a certain degree that um, that there'll be more of an impetus to try and push back against this. So another thing that I've written about is the notion of deceleration and how people are increasingly seeking this out and using it to push back against these intensification rates. And while I've written about it in, you know, relatively small scales up until now, maybe there will be a movement to do it on a larger scale after this coronavirus moment. And also if we extend the, this same question beyond just like material conditions, because you already mentioned that uh, people's brains and so on can't really, there is indications that we can't handle this excess anymore. So if we take this same question and talk about subjectivity as well, so what kind of people 
would this constantly accelerating situation bring about, if you take it to, again, a speculative conclusion? Is the outcome madness or how would you, is it some sort of hyper-capitalized subjectivity uh, or, you know, what would you think? Yeah, well, there's already been an argument that it results in very low attention spans. I always hesitate to classify people based on age, but that that this multitasker as a kind of innate subjectivity that never kind of focusing and paying attention to one thing, but constantly flitting around, that's a subjectivity that is, you know, a result of uh, of liquidity. But I think also... Yeah, the rise in people who have anxiety as well as mental health issues. I think that's been seen on university campuses to quite a large degree in the past five years or so. And people asking the question, why is there a higher rate than there has been before of mental health issues? I think you could definitely connect that to a lot of the characteristics of liquidity that we've been um, that we've been talking about today. And so whether uh it would result in uh, an entire society, a worldwide society of people who are mad. Well, I, yes, you could argue that could be the uh, the logical conclusion. And um, what I would be interested to see is would that necessarily be a bad thing? Uh, maybe it would be a group of people who are able to uh, somehow manage liquidity better than uh, those of us who were brought up in a more solid world and tend to see this as such a negative thing and something that uh, that that is quite difficult for us to manage. Maybe that that this new breed of people who were all mad uh, would be the the perfect people to live in a liquid society. Well, thanks, Gianna. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Yes, thank is you, there... Gianna.